The FBI is insidiously powerful. I don't care if it means I die. What's going on in the FBI lab has got to be stopped. Is it intentional that you don't want to have a lot of limelight and you don't want people to see your story? Is that a kind of a intentional thing on your end? Patrick, the issue is not me. The issue is human rights violations. The issue is civil rights violations. The issue is truth in our justice system. What involvement did you have in the World Trade Center bombing case? That was a big bomb. The Pan Am 103, I was in the O.J. Simpson trial. I saw a lot of things that were happening that were bad. Wait, let me let me get this straight. Has it always been where FBI has been more powerful than the president? Until they met Mr. Trump, then they met themselves. Joe Biden did not want to get mixed up with upsetting the FBI. Why do you think that is? J. Edgar Hoover was a very powerful man, and his legacy is one of blackmail. They are absolutely terrified of the boogeyman. And the boogeyman is you. It's the media. Is there still a inspiration? Is there still a fire or a chip on your shoulder to say, what's wrong is wrong. I want to be able to go expose it today. Or are you kind of over it? I'm moving on. This is my country and I'm not giving it away to thugs, period. Define thugs. What I saw at the FBI. My guest today is someone that if you Google his name, you're going to find articles. You're not going to find a lot of stuff on him. Let's just say he's not the most liked guy for some of the stuff that he, he did the right thing, but he's not the most liked guy for some of the stuff he did. But let me kind of share with you his resume. PhD from Duke University with postdoc from Texas A&M. Three-tour veteran of Vietnam War, youngest recipient of the Navy Medal of Hero Heroism, and it doesn't stop there. America's first successful FBI whistleblower, and he changed the U.S. criminal justice system forever. My guest today is Frederick Whitehurst. Fred, how are you? I'm here. It's, it's Nobody good. shot me yet. How are you hiding? Like how, you know, you're, you go through the story, some of the stuff you've done is, which we'll get into here in a minute. But, but is it intentional that you don't want to have a lot of limelight and you don't want people to see your story? Is that a kind of an intentional thing on your end? Patrick, the issue is not me. You know, I, I have asked not to be, um, I'm not the highlight, you know, and I shouldn't be. The issue is human rights violations. The issue is civil rights violations. The issue is truth in our justice system. Uh, the issue is the strength of this nation. Um, I'm just a brick in a wall and I choose to be a brick in a wall. The, those folks who want to be the wall, um, they make things unsafe for, for all of us because when they fall, the whole wall falls. Do you, do you understand the analogy? No question about it. Sure. No question about it. Have you always had this, because you, you have this aura about yourself where there are certain values and principles no one can... Uh, 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 break you up, meaning you're not going to be breaking a certain set of values and principles that you live by. Have you always been this kind of a true believer or did some event take place in your life where you became a true believer? No, I think um, I was raised by two very strong parents, a father who was a naval officer, a mother who was a very outspoken social activist. Um, and they instilled in me, my father instilled in me, you call a spade a spade. My mother instilled in me the, the concern for civil rights, for truth, that, that sort of thing. Um, but I gradually 
if you will, hardened the metal in combat in Vietnam. I saw a lot of things in Vietnam that were wrong. And then, you know, of course, in the FBI, that story is, is you know, you can look it up. Um, I saw things that were wrong. I tried to understand them. Uh, it didn't, um, it, it, I never could. You know, I did a lot of things to understand what am I seeing? What am I, what am I seeing wrong? How am I, how am I wrong? But you say, have I always been that way? Um, I don't, I don't know how to put that. Um, I've been me and I've, I've uh, matured in, in, um, into hardened steel, if you will. Uh, hey, it's, it's wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong because I think it's wrong. Yeah, it's so, very, very obvious to feel that energy from you. But by the way, politically, were your mom and dad both on the same side politically? You know, I don't know that. Politics was, um, was not an issue, not the thing that in my family, I have three brothers and we're divided um, right down the center. You know, some of us like me are conservative uh, Republicans and some of them, like a couple of my brothers, are are very liberal um, uh, Democrats, if you will. So your so your parents kind of empowered you to to be free thinkers and think for yourself. They never imposed their political beliefs onto you guys, but they did uh, impose their values and principles onto you. Yes, that's correct. Okay, okay. So so right after school. By the way, if I'm in high school with you, who was Fred in high school? I'm curious. Fred was the kid that worked in the lunchroom. You know, um, I got there at 5.30 in the morning. Um, I went to work. I wasn't, a, I wasn't one of the popular kids. Um, I didn't go to dances. I didn't really go to football games. There were things that interested me that those things would get in the way of. Such you as? I, I wanted to sail on boats. I wanted to build, rebuild machines. I wanted to landscape. I wanted to work. My, the, the work ethic in my family was something that left us work is finer than, than fine spaghetti, if you will. I mean, it's, you know, uh, you wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today? And the last thing my wife and I say at night is, what did we accomplish today? Even though I'm 73 years old, I got to do, I got to accomplish something in my day. You're 73 years old. Yes. Good for you. What kind of skin products do you use? I mean, that's the first thing my <laughs> wife would ask you. Like, what do you, are you like a Estee Lauder or a Mac guy? Because you, well, you use some kind of skin products. You, you, you got the right side. I mean, if you look at the back side, the hair is falling out. I've turned gray in the last five years. So no skin products. Yeah. Listen, you, you, you look like uh, Tom Selects, uh, brother. I mean, we talked about it earlier. You got the voice, you got the mustache, you got the look. You, you look like you were one decision away from being in Hollywood. If you wanted to go that direction. Well, Tom wants to be like me, but he can't quite get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's go back. So you're 18. You like sailing. You like building machines. That's what you're doing. Did you go into military simply because Pops was a Navy SEAL, Navy officer? I think you said he was a Navy officer. Did you go in because you just wanted to serve your country? You know, um, I went into the U.S. Army on a whim. Um, I know people that went into the People's Liberation Army in Vietnam, uh, good friends that belonged to the People's Liberation Army, that means the Army of North Vietnam at the time, um, they went as a result of patriotism. Me, I woke up one morning, I was trying to accomplish a major in math, chemistry and physics in college, I burned out, I said, I'm leaving. 
I left. I went to New York City. The next morning I woke up, I joined the U.S. Army. When they asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to Vietnam and kill communists. And that's what I told them every time. You know, I'm 73. I grew up in the McCarthy age, you know. And um, at the time, I believed what um, madmen told me. I believed in the domino theory, and I believed that, you know, I needed to protect my nation from whatever that meant. Um, so when you say a matter of patriotism, um, for me, I'm, I wish I were that kind of a patriot. I, I went, um, one morning I was a student of science and math, and next morning I was a United States Army recruit. And, and how old were you when you got your Navy Medal of Heroism? Oh, well, I was at the time the youngest man in naval history to receive the Navy Marine Corps Medal. I was 17. Um, my first day in the United States Naval Reserve, I jumped in a lake and saved one guy from drowning and tried to save another and lost him and uh, broke through ice to get into where the car had, had gone over this ledge and sunk in the water. But uh, yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a bad day. It was the 15th of January, 1965. So I was in the Naval Reserve um, and I stayed in the Naval Reserve for about 18 months, but I had a tendency back then to walk in my sleep. And you can't walk in your sleep and be in the United States Navy. You walk overboard, they don't know you're overboard till you're lost. <laughs> so they gave me an honorable um, discharge. And um, oh, three years later, I went to New York City to join the, the US Army. And they said, have you been in the military before? And I said, nope, haven't been in the military before. I was 20 at that time. They didn't find out I'd been in the military till I was in Vietnam for six months and, um, and went out of the infantry into military intelligence. You're kidding me. So, so let me, so you get your honorable discharge after getting your medal of a, 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 a Navy medal Maybe. of heroism at 17 for jumping out of a, a, a helicopter to go save somebody. And no, then- I didn't jump out of a helicopter. I swam off a shore. You swam off a shore and you yes. saved one yes. and you lost one. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and, and you said January 15 is, uh, I think it's a January 15, 19. January 15, 1965, yes. 1965. Right. And then you go to the army, you go from infantry to military intelligence. How did that happen to go from infantry to MI? I saw things happening in the field that I disagreed with. Such as? Um, such as war crimes you know, people being harmed that shouldn't. And um, I uh, found myself in an incident after about six months where a, a, a young boy was being um, brutally, just brutalized by some, six soldiers. And I just said, you know, I quit. I'm, I don't belong to this military. I'm not gonna be part of this. And a helicopter came in and I got on it and I went to the rear and, and uh, a couple of MPs met me and put handcuffs on me. and carried me over to the major who tried to talk me out of reporting the, uh, the issues. And then they took me to the colonel who he tried to talk me out of it. And um, I wasn't gonna be talked out of it. You're not gonna do that. We're, you know, we're the United States Army. We're not uh, Bashi Bazouk of the Ottoman Empire. We're the United States Army. Well, he said, these things happen. And by the way, you can't go back to the field in my battalion because you're gonna get shot in the back of the head by your own troops. What do you want to do? So he offered me a couple of alternatives and, and um, the uh, military intelligence detachment down at um, Dukfo in Quang Nai province um, needed me down there. So I went down not speaking Vietnamese. 
I learned a little Vietnamese when I was in the field, but, um, but uh, went down there and, and stayed with them for two and a half years. So you never ended up reporting it or he, the, the soldiers? Oh, no, I, I reported it. What happened to the soldiers that uh, you reported? The story? Um, what I understand was there were six Marines and they were, um, they got what's called an Article 15. That's um, a slap on the hand. Yeah, it's nothing. Um, you know, they permanently destroyed that 14, 13 year old kid. But, um, it, you know, it's not an excuse that it was wartime. When Did that visually stay with you for the rest of your life or no? The what? Is, is that visual of what they did to that 13, oh, 14 year old? I have, a, I have a, a horrible trait of remembering things vividly. And, um, you know, I mean, from, from all of my life. And yes, I, I know what they did to that kid. And I remember getting on the helicopter. I remember the warrant officer telling me to get off of his helicopter with um, words we won't speak on this interview. And me just saying no and reaching for my 45 and okay, okay, just settle down. We'll take you to the rear. By the time I got off the helicopter, I put my 45 on the ground and um, and a couple of MPs came over and um, and they put handcuffs on me, took me to major's office. Well, office, tent, whatever. But um, what was happening was wrong. And I don't know, Patrick, I don't know how not to do something. You know, I'm, I'm, it's going on. It can't go on. I'm going to try and figure out why I'm wrong. I'm not going to denigrate people or, or look down on them. But what you're doing is wrong. In the United States military, in the AmeriCal division in Vietnam, um, you know, the My Lai massacre. Well, I got there a year after the My Lai massacre in the same unit, in the same area. And I saw a lot of things that were happening that were bad. They were, they were illegal or they were just bad. And so my concept of becoming an interrogator of prisoners of war was, okay, somebody's going to come in and they're going to tell me about this stuff and I'm going to raise Cain. I'm not going to tell the U.S. media about it, but I'm going to raise Cain so that people will say, okay, don't, don't send it back there. We got a problem back there. And um, so would you were interrogating people at the time? Was that part yeah, of your Yeah, I was a life? prisoner of war interrogator. And what was, what was your approach? Because back then there was not a lot of regulations. You know, it was, a, it was a different time than it is today. What was your approach to interrogating? Well, what you had was starving soldiers brought down from the north who didn't want to be there. They had no idea. They didn't speak the language that we spoke. Uh, they were terrified. Um, you could feed them. You could clap them on the shoulder. You could treat them nicely. They weren't being treated nicely by their own political officers. They were, they were starving to death. They were up in the, in the hills. We cut off their rice lines. We put napalm all over the mountains to get rid of the foliage. Um, they, were, they were very easily convinced to say, there were some hardcore soldiers that were never going to talk. But, you know, in two and a half years, I think, uh, I probably saw two or three of those. What was the difference between your first tour, your second tour, and your third tour? Not a thing. Really? Not a thing. Um, I got there into the AmeriCal Division in March of 1969 and left out of the AmeriCal Division in um, April of 1972. Three years. Three years, yes. 
I went home. I went home every six months. Okay. When you extended time in, in country, they give you a one month leave to think it over. And I'd come back from the one month leave and I'd go right into the headquarters and I'd say, okay, I want another six months, which would give me another full year. And they knew when I got off the plane, I was going to come up and sign up for another six months. So I had another full year. Got it. I, I, I saw, I wasn't an officer. I was an enlisted man. I was a specialist five. And okay. I saw, I'm going to go home and pick up cigarette butts for some young ROTC, you know, officer who's going to harass me and uh, whatever. I need to be, if I'm a combat soldier, I need to be in combat. And I need to be with combat units. And so I just stayed out there for three years. And what kind of reputation did you end up building after what you did when you reported those guys, those Marines, the six Marines? What reputation did you have during those three years? You, you know, there was a guy that came one time and I picked him up off the helicopter pad and I brought him to the unit and I helped him with his baggage. And um, we got to his, his tent, you know, he did a, a whatever bag and I carried it and we got to go in the tent. He said, well, you're a nice guy. They told me back at headquarters, you're a real son of a bitch. <laughs> That's your reputation you had. Well, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy, but don't, don't pull that stuff. Don't, you know, this is the United States army. And, and th that's real. That's not a concept. That's not a idealistic thing. This is the United States army. And we're going to act like the United States army. And you know, that sounds maybe unrealistic of me. I think armies win when they fight ethically. But, you know, war messes people up because you have to establish too often your own morality. You have to decide them or them. And it's pretty much an everyday thing. Uh, Fred, you, you get out of the Army. You said you do three years there. Do you fully get out or do you still stay in the military afterwards? No, I got out. You're out. Okay, so when you got out. So your opinion of Vietnam War when you first went in, when you first got out, and now in 2020? When I went in, I went to Vietnam to kill communists. When I got there, I found poor peasants. I found as a prisoner war interrogator, the people I was interviewing were just people just like me. They had been conscripted, brought down south. They, they had a reason for fighting. Most American soldiers didn't want to be there. But I got to the point while I was in Vietnam of saying, I need to do this fight. It was a foolish concept, but I need to fight this just as hard as I can. I need to win this war so this will stop. Of course, you couldn't win the war. The United States would never have won the Vietnam War. And okay, so when I came home, I ran away, Patrick, and I hid. I hid in academia for 10 years. I finished my undergraduate degree in chemistry. I went to Duke. I worked in, a, in an area of chemistry called quantum chemistry. It's all theoretical, mathematical, um, sort of when you hear people talk about quantum physics, well, okay, quantum chemistry. And then um, uh, I came out of that and I came out of a postdoctoral fellowship realizing that I could not be an academician. I had to go back to war. 
it's almost like being an addict. I have to do something that means something every day rather than a long-term. I'm a simple man. I want to see results every day. I want to, I want to make a difference every day. And so I joined the FBI. It took me 18 months to get in, but I joined the FBI. You know, there's something very inspirational about your mindset. I got to tell you, there's something very, very inspirational about, my, about your mindset. And you're not trying to be motivational. You're just explaining who you are. You know, for you to say, I want to be able to get results on a daily basis. I had to go back. I had to be, I'm a simple man. I have to figure out a way to get results. That's a, that's a very, you know, uh, 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 common sense way of explaining how you want to bring value to a nation where you want to be someone that's given back. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it may be simple, but this is coming from a quantum chemist. So it's not like you're, you, got a, you don't have a simple brain. You don't have a simple mind. You don't have a simple way of processing things. But your expectation is pretty simple. So you go into the FBI. When you go into the FBI 18 months later, what, what's now your goal? The first one was, I want to kill commies. What do you want to do now? Well, darn. I applied to work for the CIA before I applied to work for the FBI. And... Um, and I love those guys. They try to find out if I was, if I still had a chip on my shoulder from Vietnam. And I got in an interview with a guy hooked up to a polygraph and he started insulting my Vietnam service. And so I reached across the desk at him. <laughs> that was the fourth interview. Um, <laughs> they thanked me for the interview and I got back down to Texas and I never heard from them again. But during the interview process, um, I don't worry, I didn't assault the guy at, at Langley, okay. But um, during the interview process, a friend of mine who worked on his doctorate at Duke um, was working for the FBI crime lab. And he said, you ought to come over here. You can have all the toys you want. And you can do good things with all the toys you want. So I went over and I went through the lab. And oh, my gosh. And, and Dennis told me, he said, you can take on the, the biggest, most expensive problems that, that satisfy the objectives of this organization and have unlimited funding and unlimited um, whatever. I mean, it's at the peak of the pyramid of the tax structure of this country. And that was beautiful. And so I went back down to Texas and I applied to the FBI and I just wanted to be a scientist. I wasn't FBI interested in being an FBI agent. I wanna be a scientist, but a guy came out of uh, the Houston office and he came over and to recruit me and he explained to me that at that time this way it was if you weren't a scientist at the fbi you're a second class citizen you could move forward up the ladder better if you were you know and get things done if you were a uh, if you were a, a badged agent so shucks i didn't want to carry a gun again you know i carried a gun i took lives with guns i'm not a gun person but i um i applied to go to the academy and um, it took 18 months to to get into my class uh, 1982 classroom class excuse me 382-3 was my class at the academy and uh, boy I, I walked in there and I was on cloud nine you know when when you're when you're in that environment you get full of hot air you are someone. You ain't nobody. You know, you're just another joke on the road with a doggone gun on your hip and a piece of 
of gold-plated metal in your pocket, but you are someone, you know? And uh, I spent the time at the academy very much dedicated to the academy. And um, then they sent me down to the Houston field office as a, a new agent. And well, is that 86? No, that's 1982. That's 1982. I came in to go into the academy on the 22nd of February. I got out of the academy on the 6th of June. Um, and I got out of the field the 6th of June of 82. I got out of the field. I went to the Sacramento field. I mean, the Houston field office, the Sacramento field office, and then the Los Angeles field office in four years. And then I transferred to the, or they transferred me to the lab on the 6th of June, 86. Is that when you became the supervisory special agent uh, from 86 to 98 at the lab? Well, actually what I was doing there I spent the first year in training and um, after the first, after 13 months, then I, uh, I, I spent, I think about a year before I was a supervisory special agent at the lab. What, what, what are some of the assignments you had at that time that we would know about, or there were some big assignments you worked on? Because if I'm looking at that time, 82, your, your Reagan, uh, senior, and you got a little bit of Clinton. That's when you were in. I got a lot of Clinton. I sued him in one. <laughs> you sued Clinton and one for like one and a half million or some number like that. Well, I didn't sue him for the money. I sued him because uh, I wanted to do, implement the Whistleblower Protection Act, which was, which was federal law. I wanted to implement it into the Department of Justice and force him. We wanted to force him with a writ of mandamus to, to say, Department of Justice, you got to obey federal law, which is bizarre, but that's where we were. But um, the kinds of cases I worked on initially were this low-level fugitive cases, extortion cases, um, bank robberies, that kind of thing. That was in the field. I was in the field in Houston for six months, went to the Chico, California, where I did uh, mostly narcotics investigations, but um, also bank robberies and fugitives. Then I went down to Los Angeles for two years. I did. Um, oh, in 84, I got there. And for two years, I did um, narcotics investigations. And then I went to the lab. And in the lab, oh, I mean, the cases you would have heard about were um, the first World Trade Center bombing case, the Pan Am 103 case. Oh, let me see. There were just a bunch of, I was in the OJ Simpson trial, but I, I was there kicking and screaming. I didn't work the case, but I reported issues in the case and the defense picked up on it. Um, oh, goodness. What, what happened with the World Trade? What, what, what involvement did you have in the World Trade Center bombing case? That was the 93 bombing. What happened was um, I went to New York City and set up a, an explosive residue analysis testing laboratory in the NYPD, New York Police Department um, Academy. And we were having to look through 40,000 tons of rubble. That was a big bomb, 40,000 tons of rubble, try to figure out what kind of the explosive it was. And that went on for 12 days. And we were sleeping two hours a night for 12 days. And you can't do that and continue 
to function. And um, then the lab became contaminated. And so we had to move evidence down to FBI headquarters. And so I, I worked on that. I worked on the, the Avianca 203 bombing case where the, um, a fellow named Dandani Munoz Mosquera was accused of blowing up Avianca 203. And I worked on the residue from that case and I'm still working on that case. Um, let me see. The Pan Am 103, I was over in, in England on that, did some of that work. The, the 1993 case, is that the one where you were, uh, you were responsible for securing a crime scene and then which led to uh, later on, uh, you saw the forensic misconduct, which later on you ended up uh, exposing? Is that kind of how the whole thing got started? No. Um, my training agent at the laboratory um, was, I was there 90 days when he was telling me how to commit perjury in court. And I was very upset with that. And his work product was sloppy and I was very upset with that. And so I started going through my chain of command. The guys around me said they'd try to do something about it for years and the command didn't do anything about it because he'd become a big liability for the lab. And um, I, I, I didn't go outside initially. Um, I was upset that, you know, if you've done it there, maybe if you've committed perjury in one case, maybe you've done it in another. And by the way, he never did commit the perjury. He just, that was part of his training. You know, that was part of what he told me. And we were required to report any, any indication of misconduct by FBI, manage, FBI management. But they didn't want it reported. They just wanted to say, you need to report it. And executive order required the report fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption to the appropriate authority. And so I, uh, I said, okay, well, here it is. And the appropriate authority initially was a unit chief, then it was an assistant section chief, then it was a section chief, then it was a deputy uh, director of the lab, then it was the lab director, then it was... Um, let me see who was it then. Um, oh yes, I, after I got in, nobody doing anything then. Then I wrote a letter to Joe Biden. <laughs> okay, when he was he was uh, head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, and Patrick, this is a neat a neat kind of a of an anecdote story. I got a letter back. I wrote it clearly as an FBI agent. I got a letter back, and I'm sure it was a staffer. He didn't come from Biden. He wouldn't. You know, he didn't have time for that. But I got a letter back that said, as a, as a federal prisoner, I should refer such issues to my prison legal uh, counsel. You, you know, what that said to me very clearly was, Joe Biden did not want to get mixed up with, with um, upsetting the FBI. He, he, just, he just wasn't. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? The FBI is insidiously powerful. It's insidiously dangerous. Louis Free, the director of the FBI, actually said it could be the most dangerous agency in the United States. Insid Till today. Insidiously, yes, it could be, yes. Louis Free was the director and he made that comment publicly. He didn't say it was. I'm saying um, we want to have a good guy. You know, people want to look up to something. And so they look up to the FBI is going to save them. 
But the FBI is made of humans and they're inner, inner, involved, they're involved in a human enterprise and all human enterprises fail. The biggest failure the FBI's got is it won't admit its failures. It just, it won't so that we as a nation can, can help them fix them. But um, when the FBI is doing background investigations on anybody that takes a, a seat up at the, at the uh, Hill, well, you know, there's the Washington two-step, Patrick. If you find out a staffer has been involved in something he shouldn't have, maybe illegal, you can do one of two things. You can either report that or else you can put it in your pocket. And when you want access, you can then say to the staffer, you know, you know, you know, you don't even have to, you know, just, you know, um, we like some assistance. And, um, you know, you remember back there in, in Podunk, uh, you know, Kentucky or whatever, you know, boom. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was a very powerful man. And his legacy is one of blackmail. His legacy is one of, well, you know, like people are talking about Mr. Epstein now. It was control by information. And until, until literally that's what my case involves. And I didn't even know it. I went into a lawyer's office and they're the finest whistleblower attorneys in the world, but I didn't know it at the time. I just by happenstance ended up there. And I said, I don't care if it means I die. What's going on in the FBI lab has got to be stopped. And my wife and I have decided we will put our lives on the line if necessary. But these are human rights violations. Well, that gave somebody um, a somebody's the kind of go ahead. This guy doesn't care if they shoot him. Well, I cared, but you know, he's going to go where, where he thinks this ought to go. So I'm sitting around <laughs> talking about mass spectrometers might not work and protocols are not valid and things like that. And other people are talking about, let's get oversight. Let's get oversight of the FBI here. And so years later, um, as we're sitting around talking about the old days, somebody says, what that really was about is getting oversight of the FBI. There needs to be oversight. It says, guys in the bureau used to say, don't worry about it, we're the investigators and nobody investigates the investigators. Somebody needs to investigate the investigators. Who would that be though? Us. Who's us? The people? Us. You and me we and the people. all of us. In all of us, yes. Who has more power? We the people, the FBI, or the government? When I say government, I'm talking about, you know, uh, exe you know, executive level, highest level. I think when you get to Washington, D.C., the, the FBI trumps everybody. They trump the Department of Justice. They trump the White House. They just trump them. Okay, that's too bad, but they trump them. And I think that's the way it operates as a system. But the FBI, I've been in there. They are absolutely terrified of the boogeyman. And the boogeyman is you. Is you. Tell me more. Tell me more. Is you. It's the media. It's the media. They're terrified of public exposure. They are absolutely, Patrick, terrified of public exposure. Nobody wants you pointing their camera or your camera at the FBI agent will walk away from it. 
FBI managers, oh my gosh, they're terrified. And it's a, it's a culture of, we gotta hide, we gotta hide, we gotta hide. We have to hide everything. If that's the case, why, is, why does Comey love the camera so much? You know, he's using the camera. He's using it. What do you okay. mean? Sure. Um, there are, let's say, there's chicken eaters and there's egg eaters. Boy, does that sound strange, doesn't it? There's guys who are journalists who will feed you up as their source. They've eaten the chicken. They're not going to get any more information. Then there's egg eaters. There's guys in the media who will continue to work with you, work with you, protect you as a source. Okay. And they get a long stream of information till the phone taps and everything catch up. Hundreds of people in the FBI wanted to come forward after I came forward. They said, well, the settlement the FBI made with me became known as the Whitehurst deal. Okay, you're going to pay me my paycheck until I would normally retire because you owe me that. I upheld my side of the contract, but you didn't. Then you're going to pay me my retirement. And that wasn't a payoff to quiet me down or I wouldn't be talking to you right now. But I think when you go to D.C., um, when you go to the media right now, media is afraid of a number of us in the FBI who blew the whistle, have put together a book called Our FBI. Louis Free put together a book called My FBI. Our FBI was written by former agent Rosemary Dew, and she's a very good author. And there's 15 or 16 folks that stories were told, and it's Our FBI, uh, something to the effect of the way the FBI um, suppresses whistleblowers or retaliates against whistleblowers, whatever. We cannot get a publisher to publish it. We cannot get a, then nobody wants to touch it. In fact, one of them actually said, I don't want to go with, to war with the FBI again. We can't get anybody to put it out. And it's a textbook of this is what will happen to you. And wait, wait, wait. So, so let me get this straight. So there is a book called My FBI. Okay, no, I just looked it up right now. The FBI. My Written. FBI by Louis Frey, Frey right? Louis Frey. Frey. Director of FBI, Louis Frey, yes. Director of FBI, and this book was written, this is not a newer book, right? By uh, uh, This was a book written in, to give the exact time, uh, it's not like the last couple of years. This came out 2006, okay, first edition, 06. So we're talking 14 years ago. When you guys wrote our FBI, when did you guys write that book? Or when did she write the book? About the last, we've been working on it for about the last three years. No it, one wants to publish the book. Nobody wants to publish the book. <laughs> She's about to self-publish it. And that's, and that's craziness. That's craziness. It's not about politics, Patrick. It's not about politics. You know, people, every time an FBI blow, person blows the whistle, they say, are you a Democrat or a Republican or a liberal or whatever? That's not what it's about. It's about, this is what we said happened. It's clear that this has happened. And we're not here to get paid off. We're not here to help somebody overcome Trump or overcome Hillary over whatever. We're just saying, this is the way the FBI um, stops whistleblowers. I imagine this, 
federal law, federal law, the Whistleblower Protection Act was passed in 1989. The FBI refused to implement it until 1996, 1997. They refused to implement federal law at the FBI and they got away with it. And why we sued William Clinton was to get a writ of mandamus, that means get a court to order him to implement federal law. You know how bizarre that is? That's just bizarre, Patrick. The senior law enforcement agency, and they want to clearly declare it the, the, the world, but you know, in the U.S., will not obey the law. They will not obey the law. Let, let me read what happened. So maybe you can unpack a little bit what happened here. 1998, the FBI and the DOJ agreed to settle with Dr. Whitehurst, yourself, Dr. Whitehurst's whistleblower retaliation claims cleared his record, restored all of his rights, and paid him a record-breaking settlement of $1.42 million, an amount unheard of for any federal employee, least of all an FBI agent. What happened there for them to pay the $1.42 million? Um, the media, um, the Congress, um, I think the man that is the strongest whistleblower advocate in the United States in our Senate is Charles Grassley. You cannot bend that man. You cannot break that man. He is exactly what you want to know a U.S. Senator should be. And he never quit. He never quit. He has never quit. Just saying you're going to adhere to the law. And by the way, I want to know this information. And we, we, we give you the money to enforce the law. Now we want to know what you're using it for. So he, he, there's no way to break Charles Grassley. He's a remarkable person. Um, but the FBI was facing that they were facing the media. You know, when the OJ Simpson trial came along, I got dragged in as the mystery witness. That all of a sudden put it on the, uh-oh, there's this FBI agent on the, on the national news. Patrick, I live in a town of 1,600 people. My 1997 pickup truck has crank-up windows in it, and that's who I am. I eat food out of the garden, okay? I had to ask Sam today, the fellow that set this up with us, should I wear my suspenders and my, my um, what do you call it, lumberjack, Shirt or should I put a suit on? He told me, well, it's up to you. Patrick doesn't care. Okay. So you see a suit, but we needed, I needed to stop what was happening there in the lab, slanting, rewriting reports, altering evidence, um, people testifying about things they had no idea about, but Washington DC needed to get a handle on the FBI, which is out of control, was out of control. And that, that's what they told me that my case really was about. Um, I'm just a quantum chemist who wants to run a mass spectrometer the right way. Yeah, but why did they pay to 1.42 million when you're saying the media? So you're saying they wanted, they wanted to slant a story or they wanted to no, write no. a report. So are you saying that they didn't want to tell the real truth of what happened and you did? And were what? they trying to kind of undermine your reputation? Nah, I don't care about that. What they did, I don't have a reputation anyhow. <laughs> okay. What they did, Patrick, was to, um, we put forward to them, this is the settlement. 
okay? Um, they had me under criminal investigation. They thought I had talked to the media, okay? But this is what, this is what needs to happen. They agreed to admit to 40 sins, 40 things that they'd done wrong, okay? And they did. And the um, President Clinton agreed to order the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice to implement the Whistleblower Protection Act. He agreed to that. And the U.S. Department of Justice agreed, finally, they were the holdouts, to, I wanted the contents of every file that the 11 guys that I reported misconduct, their misconduct or malfeasance or misfeasance, I, I wanted the contents of every file they'd ever worked on. And that was the largest Freedom of Information Act request of its kind in the FBI's history. And I spent years acquiring it and then documenting it and cataloging it and um, I've got it all. It's all digitized. Anybody that wants that information, I give it to them. There was a fellow in the Harrison Fibers unit who um, was found to have lied in the hearing involving a federal judge. And I thought if he lied in that hearing, and I didn't find it out, another agent sent a memo forward that said this guy had given false and misleading testimony 27 times in a hearing involving a federal judge. I mean, a federal judge was being, was being investigated for crime, okay? I figured if that guy did it with a federal judge, who else would he have harmed? So, so far I've collected the contents of about 1,856 cases that he worked on and men have gone free who have been in prison 20, 30, and 40 years because of that man's malfeasance have gone free. You can find their names. One of them is Donald Eugene Gates. Another one is Sante Tribble and Sante died recently because of what happened to him in prison and the horrible conditions he suffered under. Another was Kirk Odom and there's John Huffington. And the, and the names keep coming out. They're like ghosts coming out of a fog because of one man, one man. And then it turned out that his colleagues had also been doing the same thing. So in 2015, the FBI admitted that 26 of 28 FBI hair examiners had given false and misleading testimony in their reports and or trial 90% of the time over a 30 year period of time. And that's FBI admission, Patrick. And I can give you that. And that's horrible. That, that brings tears to your eyes. It's so horrible because we need, if I'm getting a little too loud, let me know, Patrick. But totally we fine. need to depend on somebody. We need to know that our taxpayers' dollars are going into protecting us, into you, real national security, not a bunch of people trying to make a career of their careers instead of do their jobs. You know, it's amazing. I watch now Black Lives Matter and I'm cheering them. I'm a conservative old white Republican and I'm cheering them because they've had enough. If you look at the record of the people harmed by those hairs and fibers analyses, you'll find most of them are people of color, 
most of them are African-American. And nobody seems to pick up on that. On that, that, well, he must be guilty, therefore the evidence is this is what it means. That's wrong. I, you know, I went to law school. I don't know if you noted that, but I went I to Georgetown. I, Joe, I went to Georgetown and I got my JD. I went because the deputy general counsel at the FBI told me when I went to her with these issues, if you just knew the law, Fred, you'd understand why these are not really the, such big issues. So I applied to law school and Georgetown accepted me. Nobody else would, but Georgetown accepted me. I went to law school for four years at night while I was suing the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice and the President of the United States and <clears throat> all those people and, um, and things. And I got out of law school and the, the Deputy General Counsel is still there. And she said to me, Fred, that's just theory. You need to practice law. So I've practiced law for 16 years. I've been a criminal defense attorney for 16 years. I got to tell you, Patrick, I've hated every microsecond of it. I hate the courtroom. It's a place of misery. It's a place of crime. It's a place of injustice. But at the end of it, I still think it's wrong for us to lie in court, to present half a truth. And by the way, the FBI lab is doing it, still doing it. They moved and they, they, they recovered from that, but now they've moved back into it. I, I watch FBI cases today and I look at, you know, I'm, I'm hired as a forensic consultant. Um, and I, I see, oh my goodness, they're rewriting reports. And oh my goodness, they're talking about stuff they don't know anything about and they're mis, misinterpreting data. You know, I asked you a question. I said, who's going to hold them accountable? So you said you, who's me? Media. Okay. Is me media or is me we the people? Which one is you? You know what? We the people read what you, the media, publish. Okay. The media, media has lost some of its credibility too. You know, we've seen, we've seen that. It's been politicized. But <clears throat> one thing that's encouraging to me, literally, and I've said it already, about Black Lives Matter is that they've had enough. Those folks were right or wrong. They have had enough. And they've had enough, and it's not gonna it's not gonna stop. I pray it's not gonna stop just because it got cold. You know, it's not gonna stop because we had our celebration this summer and now we're gonna go home and things are gonna be right. I think it's gonna carry forward. And I think that demonstrates to this nation we have had enough. This this thing that you represent is supposed to be our thing, and you've made it into your thing. Fred, question. Yes. At the time when you were coming up, so one case, John F. Kennedy. So at that time, you said Hoover earlier. Who was more powerful at that time, the mob, Hoover, or uh, JFK? JFK. JFK was more powerful at that time. Yes, that's right. Then, then it's Hoover, then it's the mob. Did Would I you say put, JFK? You said JFK at the top. I'm very sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Okay. No, the FBI. So Hoover was the most powerful in America. Yes. yes. Uh -huh. Who was after him? I don't know that. He, I don't know that. Wait, let me let me get this straight. So you're saying from that time till today, the FBI, has it always been where FBI has been more powerful than the president? Yes, and I would say it this way. 
I would say it this way, until they met Mr. Trump, okay? <laughs> then they met themselves, okay? That's my opinion. He's one gonna be bullied around by that stuff. And, you know, I was laughing about it. I wasn't in love with Mr. Trump, but I was laughing about the fact that he, he just, wait a minute, you're not doing that. You're not coming over here and doing that to me. I'm your boss, you know? And that famous saying of his, you're fired, okay? But we had an FBI director, the only FBI director in the FBI's history, William Sessions, who was a true good American FBI agent, a true good man, an ethical good man, that the FBI um, upper management conspired against and got fired. William Sessions was a, I'll tell you, he sent a memo out to all personnel one time. He said, if you have an issue that you, you have not, do not feel has been addressed, I want to know about it. Come to my office. When I got that memo, I picked the phone up immediately. The memo was in my hand. His secretary said, come up right now. That doesn't happen at the FBI. A mid-level manager like me goes up to the, yes. And he listened to me for 45 minutes. That was a national leader. And then two weeks later, he brought me back with his general counsel. And they talked to me for two hours. Get out of here. Hours. Yes. And I was talking to him about the problems in the lab. And this, this is the director of FBI at the time. This the is director of six William, William Sessions. Yes. And then shortly after that, he got fired. He got set up by his upper management because he was bringing some sense of of good to us. So let me ask you, since since you've been out, since you've been out, okay, so you you're done, you know, you get your obviously lawsuit settled 1.42 in 1998, that's 22 years ago. What have you been doing the last 22 years? Well, um, for five years after I got out, I was offering my services as a consultant. Um, in forensic science, I was, um, going through FBI documents and watching how they were handling cases and looking at what they were, how they were progressing and they progressed, Patrick, they're light years from where they were when I got out. Okay. But the rot is sneaking back in. But, um, after five years, um, I live in a small County in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. Okay. After five years, I um, said, well, I got a law degree and I don't understand. These guys around here, I'm offering my services free and nobody's calling me. So I said, well, I need to go over to the courthouse, start practicing law and find out what's going on. And so I went over and uh, by the way, nobody would hire me. Nobody wants to hire somebody that sued the president. You know, that's trouble around the office. I mean, nobody anywhere would hire me. Um, but that was okay. I needed to work for myself. And uh, I took the bar exam and failed it and took the bar exam and failed it. And then I took the bar exam and passed it. And then I went over to the courthouse and for about 90 days, I sat in the courtroom trying to figure out what in the dickens is going on. And then I uh, went over to the public defender's office and put my name on the uh, indigent defense list and started uh, going to court with folks. And I got to tell you, what goes on in the courtroom has nothing to do with what goes on in, in law school. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you don't go in as an apprentice for somebody, 
you are lost. So I started defending folks to, to understand why court, the courtrooms allow garbage in the name of science, name science, it's garbage to be entered as evidence. And then I started consulting heavily and then it was a point at which I had about 250 cases I was representing, which is crazy impossible. And I learned the culture of the courtroom is a big reason why the forensic science gets away with what it gets away with. Um, when you go into a courtroom and there's 12 to 2,500 people coming through that courtroom in one day, one day, and they have 360 minutes to parse among all of them. You can't say Fourier transform infrared spectrophotometry. You can't say gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. You got to line up behind the rest of the attorneys waiting for two or three prosecutors, possibly only one. Hand them your, your, your bid for freedom. They give you back their bid. You go to your client, you come back. You, I mean, it's going, it's a, it is a production line. And Concepts of validation of scientific protocols are way, way, way outside the sphere of people that practice law every day that literally go into court. So, so let me ask you, did, did what you do the last 22 years distract you from going back and holding the FBI accountable where you were kind of like, well, I did my part. I'm moving on to becoming an attorney. Or is there still the fire right now where the last 22 years have taught you on how to go out there and expose more today. Meaning, is there still a inspiration? Is there still a fire or a chip on your shoulder to say, what's wrong is wrong. I want to be able to go expose it today. Or are you kind of over it? I'm moving on. I will die exposing. I will die raising questions. I mean, I'm saying it's 73. I got until I'm blind, until I can't get out of bed, until I will do this till the day I die. This is my country and I'm not giving it away to thugs, period. Define thugs. Thugs, what I saw at the FBI, alter scientists' reports, um, alter evidence, lie in court, uh, intimidate people on the street, uh, all of that. You know, I'm not giving it up to them. I'm going to fight smart. You know, the Viet Cong taught me fight to fight again. You know, they didn't stand up and shoot at you. They, they came out of a hole, shot at you, and came back in the hole. Fight to fight again. Fight smart. But I'm not giving my country away. I'm not going to. It's mine. And if everybody else wants to give it away, that's just fine. So I look at their protocols I look at whether they validated things or not. I raise issues. Validate means, that, and I'll tell you, the folks who may hear this may not understand what I'm saying, okay? When I ask you a question, you give me an answer, but did you give me the right answer? You had a method which you used to give me an answer. Is it, is it a method that gave the right answer? Did, if you validated it. Forensic science didn't even understand that. They didn't understand that until about Supreme Court law, Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals came out and said, if you're going to come into a court of law with evidence, you've got to tell us 
if you use the right process to get to it. It's sort of, if we hearken back to Matt versus Ohio, it used to be that officers beat confessions out of people. Well, then you get the suppression of evidence. Okay, we're not going to accept that evidence because it's more important that we do this job right. Well, what happened was the, the nightsticks got just traded for people in crime laboratories. You're either going to do it right and give us the answer and prove how you got that answer or else you're not going to do it. Well, it's taken over 20, 1993, what is that? 20 years or whatever. Um, and courts are still not accepting that. You walk in with a badge and a gun and you're an FBI agent and by golly, we better believe those boys in blue. No, there are boys in blue who cross the blue line. You know that expression? I didn't cross the blue line, they crossed. They go outside the honorable profession of being law enforcement officer. And we have a difficulty pointing our fingers at them because very often they are false heroes. So, uh, Fred, who fears them the most? Who fears the FBI the most? I think the nation is afraid of the FBI. You think so? You think the nation as people is afraid of the yeah, FBI? I think so, sir. Tell, tell, me, tell me why you think the nation is afraid of the FBI. You know, the FBI in many ways it represents a national security threat. And nobody's doing anything about it. If I know what you're going to say, I can make you say anything I want you to. If I know that your primary purpose in life is to become promoted so that you're making more salary, I can get you promoted if you say what I want you to. I can do that. Then when we have national security threat, like let's say weapons of mass destruction, I watched that silliness in where was Iraq, you know? And I, and I heard military officers say to me, we saw from our satellites what was coming out of those, that's those, those, um, Tractor trailer trucks, okay? You can't see from 30,000 feet in the air, much less 30,000 or whatever. You can't, it's not possible. But you get people to say it. And then what have we got? We're, we're running off on boondoggles following false. The American people need to demand more than that. And I think when the media says we won't publish our FBI, <laughs> You know, they don't feel solidly on footing to put, put out information that's valid information that can be tested and checked and documented. They, they're okay. They're not sure that the people will back them. And the people, people are afraid of the FBI. And, who, and that's too bad. Who dislikes you? Who is afraid of you or people <laughs> like you? I think the people that, that dislike people like me are those that are guilty. I think so. There are guys there, you, you know, I don't know what you're going to do with this footage, but there are FBI agents that will be infuriated by what I'm saying. They will think that I crossed the blue line. I have friends, very good and close friends who are still 
well, they're out of the FBI now, but that will tell me about conversations they go into where people say, that guy's a nut. He's a traitor. Okay. Well, so I'm a nut. Oh, okay. But I present to you U.S. government documentation to say what I'm saying. Don't trust me. Don't trust the FBI. Ask for the data. Ask for the process. And you know what? We're not going into court and asking for, I want your data and I want your protocol. And I don't care if it's the data from an investigation in the field or if it's in the laboratory or what. I want to see it. And we're not doing that. And I don't think we're, we're not doing that out of, of laziness. I think we're not doing that out of fear. Out of fear. What's going to happen? Is he going to start looking at my um, computer um, searches? Or uh, is he going to look at my taxes? Or is he going to harass me? Or is what? Is he going to show up at my job and ask my boss if I'm there? knowing my boss is afraid of him, so I'll lose my, all of that stuff. You need to get a handle on that, Patrick. So then that means the business model of the, if, if, because if you're saying that to me, first place I go to is the business model of, of an FBI agent doesn't work. Meaning, if I have to worry about kissing your ass to get a promotion, that model doesn't work in the FBI, if that makes any sense. I don't know if I'm making any sense on what I'm saying. The business model has to be based on markers I hit, whether you like it or not. Yes, sir. Uh, 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 and how you do that, I don't know how you do that. I'm not in that world. Uh, uh, I know every business has a certain form of a compensation structure on how they pay people. And sometimes a certain comp plan can create bad habits. So if you're saying I need to kiss someone's ass to get a promotion, that is definitely not a good comp structure set up for FBI agents. I wouldn't want that kind of a comp for FBI agents. Well... You give the right answer to the right guy, to the right question at the right time to get the right job. And that's the model. And that's the model. It's not effective. I mean, I, I just, oh, I think that needs to not be effective. And they, there's no accountability. Yeah. If you make a mistake, there's no accountability. You know what? I don't know what business you're in, Patrick, but if you're selling a product, okay, and you sell a product that doesn't work, but you know what? You got a business. There's no, there's no accountability there. Yeah. So if you've got no accountability, you've got to have maximum oversight. Every time you take a step, you take a step, someone has to look over your shoulder. Now, there's a public policy reason to have no accountability for law enforcement because law enforcement would be sued continually and be put out of work. That's been carried too far. And there's a movement in this country right now to start naming names and giving citizens the right to sue law enforcement officers who you know, <laughs> pull this stuff of um, shooting folks in the back who are running from them and things like that. The man who put Donald Eugene Gates in prison for 28 years of his life lives in a nice corner lot in a nice suburb making a bunch of money. And for three years after he got out of the bureau, there was, a, there was the things I raised about him. Then the FBI hired him again as a contract employee. They let him go when I, when during a new revelations coming out, I called a newspaper, a well-known newspaper, and I said, would you ask the question publicly, why is he still working for the FBI when you know these things have happened, okay? And they did, and the FBI let him go that day. There is no accountability. 
They should go and seize his retirement check, seize his home, seize all his property. I don't care where he goes. I'm sorry. He can live in an apartment someplace if he can afford it. Take it all away and use it to try to make whole, though you will never make whole, those people that he put down for decades with false and misleading testimony. And the government has admitted this man did this. There's a case out there, U.S. versus Derry Nelson. Derry spent 33 years in prison. He got out about two years ago after we fought for about four years. He got out. Now he's waiting to be tried again for murder. And the government admits and the court admits that the evidence presented by that particular FBI agent was lies and fabrications. And the Court of Appeals says it was perjury. There's no accountability for that agent. He's beyond accountability. Patrick, <laughs> you know, um, if there is no accountability, there has to be absolute total oversight. Every day, people are monitoring what's going. There are cameras. Everything you do, everything you do, there's a camera pointed at. Otherwise, you don't fear anything. But you do want to get ahead and get to be the section chief or the deputy director or go to the Rose Garden and have somebody put a medal on you. You know? Yeah. So yes, kissing ass doesn't give a good product for promotion that way, but um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the format for the FBI. You know, I'm looking at a number right now from Gallup, say FBI positive job rating steady among Americans. This is from a year ago, May of 2019. It says, to give you the st specific numbers, 57% of Americans say the FBI is doing an ex excellent or a good job. Okay. 57%. This is from Gallup. There's another one that says 76%, which is from Courthouse News, mm -hmm. saying 76% of Americans think that the FBI is doing a good job. Uh, do, do you think America looks at FBI in a trusting way and they say, you know, I don't know what Fred is talking about. I just think he's a former disgruntled FBI agent. He just, you know, somebody probably pissed him off. And I get it, you know, good for him. You know, something probably happened and more power to him, you know. But most FBI agents are good guys and they're doing the right things. And I, I don't think they have the power. It's like cops, you know, one one cop doesn't ruin all cops. Of course, there's bad cops, but not all cops are bad cops. You know, I think it's just over-exaggerating. What would you say to that? I would say, first of all, most FBI agents are good folks. And I testified to that on the Senate, you know. Don't paint this with too narrow a brush and don't paint it with too broad a brush. Most FBI employees are good people. They do have a, a moral dilemma they have to face. Um, do I uphold my oath or do I keep my family safe? Okay, but they're good people. What happens is the management of the FBI is, is phenomenally, in my opinion, corrupt. And I think when you go to the field and you ask field agents about what they refer to as bu humps, B-U, as in boy uniform, Bravo uniform, bu humps, nobody has a good opinion of bu humps. They are people that gave the right answer to the right guy to get the right job at the right time, that sort of thing, okay? Um, I think that it's sort of like what you said about most think you're doing a good job. There are people on the street that think I'm a good attorney. How do they know whether I'm a good attorney or not? They're not attorneys. They can't judge me. How did anybody know that agent that put 
that put that man in prison for 28 years based on false and misleading testimony. How did anyone know that that agent was not a good guy? When you looked at him, he was an agent's agent. He was a very handsome man. He was tall. He was built. He was, you know, he was soft-spoken. And he was an out-and-out liar. He was a psychopath, in my opinion. Okay, how would anybody know that? He got three attorneys general's awards. I mean, the U United States Department of Justice gave him three awards. And then one day, I'm in this other agent's office and the agent pulls out a memo he wrote on the third day of August, 1989. And he says, that psychopath gave false and misleading testimony 27 times in a hearing involving a federal judge by the name of Alcee Hastings, who is now a senior U.S. congressman. And he gave me that memo. And I copied that memo. And the world would have never seen that memo. And that memo was to that agent's boss to tell him this is going on. And we need to fix this or do something about it or the FBI's reputation is going to suffer. Okay. How would you, how would the American people know whether FBI agents are doing the job right? By looking at the work product of the Office of Congressional and Public Affairs. They got more agents worried about the media representation and what the public perceives of them than they do about some major crime areas. There's a hundreds of people in the Office of Congressional and Public Affairs. Okay. And those guys are continually feeding misinformation. And so you see today's FBI, you see, you know, there's an FBI show on right now where there's a woman agent and a Middle Eastern guy who is an agent. And you say, boy, and those of us that have been in the FBI, there's a glass ceiling. That's, that's silliness. That's silliness. You know, that's not what happens in the FBI. The FBI is an old white man's organization, and it stays that way by brute force. Is and it really? You, yes. If you call, say, call on Rosemary Dew or whatever, you know, and look at, and look at some of the underlying, a friend of mine, a friend of mine just got out of prison on the 18th of this month. He was an FBI agent. He got four years. He can't talk about it, but um, he got four years because he did not want to go into Muslim communities of immigrants and force people in the religious community to stitch on their people in the community. He didn't want to do it. And he went about um, revealing it in a way that the FBI was able to get him convicted to four years. Four years in sentence. He's just got out after two. The American people do not know the problems in the FBI, and they can't know. J. Edgar Hoover building is a bunker, and you're not allowed in. Who's, who's working hard right now to expose them, and who do you think can be successful at doing that? Is it even Senator, possible? Senator Charles Grassley. That's the one you were talking about earlier. Senator, Senator Charles Grassley is an American hero. What's the, who's the biggest name that has his back even bigger than him, more powerful than him? Senator Charles Grassley is the foundation. Okay, got it. He's holding, he is holding up the building. 
what's what's supporting Senator Charles Grassley is the fact that he he is above reproach. Period. A, a what? Say that one more time. He's above reproach. He's above the FBI tricks. Completely above it. He is an American hero. He is the American hero. Period. He's 87 years old. Yes. And I'm 73, Patrick. <laughs> There's a big difference between 87 and 73. That's right. There's a big Isn't difference. Amazing? Isn't it amazing? Well, in today's times, you know, 73, we have a 78-year-old president-elect and a 74-year-old president today. Yes. You know? mm -hmm. so, so, so today, actually, that, you, that would be considered old a long time ago, not today. Today, it's, we're living a different time. Um, you know, you were uh, you eventually joined the board of directors at the National uh, Whistleblower Center, and you help fight cases uh, where misconduct has been involved, helping innocent people get out of jail. And you've been doing that, you know, several of the things you've worked on. Uh, what do you think about what Tulsi Gabbard said recently when she said she believes Trump should pardon uh, Julian Assange and Edward Snowden? I don't know if you caught that or not, but she just said that a few days ago. I have heard that. I'm at, at odds with Mr. Snowden, you know, but Mr. Snowden pointed out was that there was not a place he could go to in our national security agencies that was, would work. That's what he pointed out. The secrets that he let go um, that I understand, I'm, I don't have firsthand knowledge that are damaging to national security makes me say, you know, there's gotta be another way. There's gotta be another way, NSA, CIA, intelligence community, whatever. There's gotta be another way to do this. Besides when whistleblowers are not allowed to report internally, then they're like me. They finally just go out. And it creates a distrust. But manage, if Snowden was a righteous, he had righteous concerns. So did my friend that just got out of prison after two, two four years sentence, but two years in. Okay? Righteous concerns. The bullies in those organizations will not seriously consider the concerns and try to address them. And, you know, as a, as a nation... We're concerned about that stuff. Should they give him a, a pardon? I, I am personally afraid of anything that Donald Trump does. I'm a Republican. I'm an old conservative white man, Republican. Okay, but I am concerned about anything he does. He's, he frightens me in his amateur way of going about what he's going about. Can you unpack that? You're saying he's going through things in an amateur way. Can you unpack yes. it? What do you mean by that? He's an amateur. He's not out of D.C. He doesn't understand the nuances of what he's doing. And he's some of the some of his ideas are good ideas. But um, to continually get caught in lies, in inappropriate activity and behavior and, you know, misogynistic, whatever, and all of that stuff. 
to encourage white supremacists or whatever. That's, 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 a, that's an amateur. That's an amateur. Leading this country takes a professional. And um, it's too bad because we need that, whatever it is, that sort of, I'm gonna stand in your face, but we also need some substance behind it. And I'm, I'm afraid Donald doesn't have that substance. That's my personal opinion. No, I mean, it's, it's uh, your perspective is, is, is hurt. You know, it's who would you say was a good combination of having a backbone and still knowing how to play the political game? Who was a good combination of both? Well, I'll, I'll announce in your show, I, I voted for Kamala Harris. You, you voted for Kamala Harris. I did. I voted for, I voted for Joe Biden because he's tagging along with Kamala, but she's been a public servant her whole life. I want to see equality in this nation. I want to see someone who's an attorney, who's been in court, who understands our legal system. I want to, I, I've been up against her at a, at a distance in a court case I went through in San Francisco where she was actually providing cover for somebody that was providing bad information. She didn't know it. But um, uh, when I went down there, that's that's who I that's my finger went my pen went on that. Um, who who are your all time uh, uh, favorite presidents? I'm curious. Like who else have you voted for? Who do you look at as a oh, I great love, president? I loved Ronald Reagan. <laughs> you know, uh, I know Ronald had his faults, but I loved Ronald Reagan. I'm just sorry that he was a Hollywood cowboy. You know, um, uh, and the first time, the first time I voted for Barack Obama, I was pleased that Barack's personal life didn't get crowded into the media all the time, exposure. I'm so tired of that, you know. Um, but I didn't vote for anybody the next time. I'm a, I was afraid that he went way too far in the other direction and, and created Donald Trump is what I think he did. Did you vote for Trump or no? No, um, I did not vote for Trump. I couldn't vote for anybody in that election. Got it. Got it. Uh, 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 interesting, uh, interesting perspective for you to not uh, support a Trump pardoning Assange and Edward Snowden because they would be whistleblowers and why not pardon them so they can be free it's very interesting because you're very um, you're 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 tough to put in a place because you're all you're you're in different places politically, but who you vote for, what you like, what you dislike. You like Trump's personality to go up against the FBI because you thought he was the right guy that could go up against FBI, but you didn't vote for him. You voted for Kamala Harris because you like her approach. For, you know, you're very interesting where you are and how you process issues. Very, very interesting. I have to say this to you. Um, you know, I'd like to do a quick uh, a speed round. I'll give you a name and tell me the first thing that comes to mind. I'll give you one name and tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Putin. A quick name would be Trump. Okay. Comey. Ugh. I don't have a name for him unless you want me to say something. In oh, this. it's not a name. Any word. Any word that comes to mind. You can tell oh. me. So Comey, what word would, comes to mind? The word? Problem. 
Uh, so what word would come to mind for Putin? Putin? Trump. Okay, got it. How about Trump? Putin. Okay. Kamala Harris. Rosa Parks. Carter, Jimmy Carter. Lincoln. Okay, Reagan. Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. <laughs> Obama. Clean. Clean? Clean. Okay. Julian Assange. Dirty. Snowden. Confused. AOC. Dangerous. Bill Clinton. Dangerous. Biden. Politician. Hillary. Very dangerous. You are so interesting. William Sessions. Patriot. I got to tell you, I've enjoyed this uh, uh, conversation with you. Very much so. I've really enjoyed talking to you. You know, your perspective is very, uh, um, obviously, you know, the one thing is very, very uh, clear with you. You're uh, unbreakable with your beliefs. You're a true believer of where you're at. You're not willing to compromise that. You're calling out, you know, who you consider being one of the most powerful institutions that have not, are not held accountable by anybody. Um, and I'm really curious to know what you're going to do at the young age of 73. Like, I'm really curious to know what you're going to do next. Because if you're talking about Senator Grassley at 87 being the one that's going around, you know, driving his initiative, and he's the leader to be able to hold FBI accountable, and you're 73, that means uh, you, you got some fresh, you know, legs to be able to make a run at some things you can expose. And I'm very curious and looking forward to seeing what you're going to be doing. Well, are you asking me a question or telling me good night? <laughs> I'm going to leave it open-ended for you to have closing thoughts. You have the final word. What, what, what do you want to say before we wrap this up? What I'm going to do is keep watching. This is my country, and I'm going to keep watching the people that I think are failing and raising issues about those failures. Um, I'm not going to move to Washington, D.C. I'm not going to run for public office. Um, I've learned what I need to learn in a court of law, and so I'm not going to represent defendants in courts of law anymore. But um, my, my strong point is science and just saying, you know, this is the way I see it. I may be wrong, but this is the way I see it. And I, I think finishing up, I'm going to continue to collect data. And it's, you know, it's U.S. government documents or if it's data from crime laboratories or if it's testimonies from courts or whatever. I'm going to continue to collect data and give it away to anybody that wants it. Well, let us know if you got anything new you want to share with us. We're here to, uh, if you got anything you want to share with uh, the world, because they're curious as well. They're curious as well. 
So thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, I know we're not going to be speaking probably in the month of December. If we don't, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to you. And to you too, sir. Thank you. Okay. How can that story be so secretive where not many people have heard his story? Isn't that an interesting life? If you go online right now, you type in his name, you're not going to find out. You'll see Wikipedia, but you're not going to find anything. I mean, you're not going to find videos, interviews, nothing of him. And to have that fascinating of an interview, to be that stubbornly curious that you want to know, powerful story, by the way, curious to know what you took away from it. And uh, if you enjoyed this, I mean, he still got me thinking. I literally just got out of the interview. If you enjoyed this interview, you would also enjoy an interview I did with Michael McGowan, former FBI agent who went up against the Sinaloa cartel in La Cosa Nostra. If you've never watched this, click over here to watch that interview. Similar story. Nobody knew him until we did the interview, and then he ended up getting a million views or so. And he's also got a fascinating interview. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.